There's something I've got to ask you. Animal, vegetable, or mineral? Uh, it's just... I don't know where to begin. Well, what is it, darling? Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are almost done with the 1936 awards, with the second to last or next to last movie, Libeled Lady, starring... William Powell and Myrna Loy and Jean Harlow and Spencer Tracy. Uh, I have I have so many th- thoughts about this weird, weird movie, <laughs> most of which kind of boil down to why won't they just fucking put William Powell and Myrna Loy in a room? Because every time they do, the movie's great. And then they keep coming up with new reasons why the two of them can't just be in a room. Right? Okay, thank you. Also, (laughs) the other thought I have about this movie pretty consistently is, why did anyone ever like Spencer Tracy? (laughs) Yeah, he's... (laughs) I mean, he's like a big deal movie star, and I hated him in San Francisco, and I somehow hated him more in this. (laughs) To be fair, in both of those films, he plays something worse than a Baxter, which is like a Baxter that slowly reveals itself to just be the, like, dark heart of America. Like, the fucking worst person (laughs) alive. Like, I... (laughs) Wow. I mean, I can't disagree with you, but wow. (laughs) Spencer Tracy, the dark heart of America. Yeah, so about, I guess, half of the way through this movie, I realized that what this really is, is a cheap knockoff of It Happened One Night. Yeah, for sure. They really were like, what if we just made It Happened One Night, but changed the story enough that nobody will accuse us of just straight up ripping it off, which is odd to me because Hollywood at this time didn't seem to have any compunction about that. (laughs) The other thing that makes that really weird, and we will get into the ending. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. The thing that's so weird about it is that it seems to have a dim understanding with what's wrong with the romantic comedy formula, but has absolutely no clue at all what to do about it. Yes. But it has figured out that the problem with it happened one night is like, there's like a loser here. There are weird gender dynamics and there are people who are left out of this happy ending in ways that are really unpleasant if you think about it for half a second. Yes. However... Is the solution, and I'm not saying that it's not necessarily the solution, it may be, but is the solution to just give no one a happy ending? Yeah. Or like an implied later happy ending, but one that we don't ever see? I mean, let's talk the plot, because you kind of need the plot for us to really get into that ending. And the plot is luckily super short. Yes. Because this movie middles around for a good hour of its hour and a half running time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So... The New York Evening Star, a fake newspaper that sounds like every other newspaper in New York, prints a story about a wealthy heiress named Connie Allenberry breaking up a marriage. They immediately figure out that that story was bullshit, um, but too late because she is suing them for libel for $5 million, a.k.a. a gajillion billion dollars in 1936 money. I actually said to Sean when they said that, I was like, that's... 
that's all the money that exists in 1930s. That, yes. That's literally all of the money. And then shortly after that in the movie, somebody was like, that much money, it doesn't even exist. And I was like, see, it's all of the money. <laughs> For comparison, this movie made half that much money <laughs> and was extremely successful. It cost about a tenth that much money. Yeah, $603,000. Anyway, in order to figure out some way out of this bind, they go to William Powell, who is once again playing the smoothest, smartest motherfucker that ever lived, who's also kind of a jerk, once again. Um, But he used to be there, like, it was really unclear to me what his job was supposed to have been. He was definitely a writer, but they sort of framed it as, like, he was the fixer. Yeah, he was the right fixer, rumor monger, g- g- like, the celebrity column guy. Like, it's really, it's a moving target, what this guy does. But the answer is, what he actually does is try and seduce Connie Allenberry, because in what I'm fairly sure is not how the law works at all, if she gets caught breaking up another marriage, then it's not actually liable to have accused her of breaking up a marriage she didn't break up. Yeah, I'm not sure what their... Well, I mean, their whole plan is so just terrible and convoluted and bad. But I assumed, and this is perhaps giving the movie way too much credit, I assumed that it would be like, look, we won't print this story about you breaking up a marriage if you drop the libel suit for us accusing you of breaking up a marriage. But they keep saying they're going to go to the lawyers in a way that makes me think they're actually going to try and argue in court about this. But honestly, it never fucking comes up and doesn't matter at all. The only reason they're doing this dumb plan is so they can go, wait a second, William Powell's character, Bill Chandler, isn't married. So if she's going to break up a marriage, he needs to get married to somebody. And then Spencer Tracy goes, well, I have a fiance that inexplicably fucking puts up with my shit. Maybe marry her. I mean, really inexplicably puts up with his shit. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I have actually Spencer Tracy is the worst in my notes so many times that I eventually had to find new ways to say it, such as (laughs) Spencer Tracy is a fucking monster. (laughs) The thing is, I kept not like, I didn't really write that down in my notes so much because it seemed so inevitable that he would get his comeuppance. And, like, he doesn't really. No! I just figured the entire last act was going to be people relentlessly fucking dunking on him because he's the obstacle to absolutely everyone's happiness. And nope. <laughs> then, really, no. He kind of gets socked in the face once and not even that hard, and that's it. Yeah. So, this is their plan. And obviously, Bill and Gladys, who is Spencer Tracy's fiance, played by Jean Harlow, get married at City Hall. And then Bill goes and pays people to harass Connie and her dad when they're getting ready to go on a cruise so that he can break up the fight and endear himself to the family. They then go on a cruise to... uh, are they going to America or from America? They're going to America from England. Yes, they're going to America from England. He right, right, right. Like flew over to stay one night to go back on this cruise, and in one of the movie's smarter choices, absolutely nothing on the cruise works for him. <laughs> he does an okay job of acquainting himself with Connie's dad, 
by constantly lying about fly fishing, but she instantly dislikes him and never really overcomes that dislike at any point on the boat. In a less great thing, the turn seems to be him telling her off, but like, on the boat, his plan to constantly lie to her and pretend to be somebody else and come to her rescue is really unsuccessful. Of course, because it's William Powell playing Bill... He is utterly charming, and she's having to basically write off any good feelings she has toward him as him being a gold digger, essentially. He then goes on a, like, trout fishing thing with her and her dad that she thinks is going to reveal him to be a fraud, but because of a hastily set up magic power he has to underhand fly fish, it doesn't. And then they have, like, a cute thing where they're staying at the fishing lodge, and it turns out that, like, she can make flapjacks and cook because, and this is, again, very much in line with It Happened One Night, millionaire heiresses are people, too. (laughs) Yeah, and they really hastily fall in love, and then there's a long period where Bill has to hide that they're in love and keep coming up with new reasons why they can't go through with the plan. This falls apart when Spencer Tracy goes and does what he immediately should have done, which is beg Connie Allenberry not to fucking ruin his newspaper. And he finds Bill Chandler, William Powell's character, there at her mansion. We then get to a sort of hastily done third act of like, oh, how is this all going to fall apart? Who's going to tell who? That ends with Bill apparently off-screen, coming clean to Connie Allenberry about absolutely everything about the plan, him also off-screen figuring out that Gladys, Spencer Tracy's fiancé who he married for the sake of the plan, never got divorced really from her first husband, and so they couldn't have legally been married, so he's not legally married, so he can legally get married to Myrna Loy's character. And then things get even more complicated. Because apparently Gladys knew that she wasn't technically divorced from her... Where was it? It's somewhere in, in Mexico. Yeah, they got like uh, a... Tijuana or something. So she got another divorce in Reno. And so actually she was divorced when William Powell and Gene Harlow got married. So he's technically a bigamist now because he is married to both Gladys and Connie, which the way that the New York City Records Office and City Hall works in this movie is so weird. Yeah. (laughs) Because he married Gladys like Not even two weeks ago. Yeah. If he walks into City Hall at night, which again, both times these marriages take place on a whim where they walk into City Hall at night, which is not how that works. Like you can't, they don't have those kind of hours. (laughs) Also, having gotten married at City Hall in New York, you have to go and apply for a license and then you can only get married after 24 hours have elapsed. I don't know if that was the case in the 30s. But I do know that there's no government office that has ever been open at, like, 11 p.m. <laughs> I like the idea that that's a precaution added after romantic comedies were invented, where they were just like, <laughs> people can just get married? Christ, that's a terrible idea. There should be some kind of a waiting period. 
Yeah, exactly. And also, maybe we shouldn't be open at 11 p.m. Yeah. Anyway, what then happens is that uh, Gladys is like, well, I'm not giving him a divorce because I like him and he's a good husband, which, like, he's nice to her, but he's nice to her in a way that is so obviously self-serving, which is like, don't spoil the whole thing because I'm trying to, like, get with Connie and if you tell her that we're married without the context and I'm not able to break it to her easily it's gonna ruin it and then somehow he and Spencer Tracy go in another room to fight Myrna Lloyd and Jean Harlow have a heart-to-heart where Myrna Lloyd is like you know marriage is too important and you can't build a life on hate or a marriage on spite which I know because I've been married for an hour which she actually says (laughs) Like, I know I've only been married for an hour or two. Spencer Tracy and William Powell get in a fight. William Powell is like, I don't even want Gladys. You could have her. But, you know, it'll look better if I punch you in the nose because it'll look like you really fought for her. And then Connie's dad comes in and is like, what is going on? And then the movie ends. Yeah, Connie's dad comes in because the movie seems to realize that it can't actually solve all of these problems in less than 10 minutes. It can't do a 10 minute coda of like, well, I guess we go down to the Hall of Records. And the thing that we do is that first we invalidate the marriage. of Right, right. That because there's just this boring procedural 10 minutes that we shouldn't watch to sort out all this shit in the last act. And I can't even go like, well, then don't do this thing because that's the whole movie is leading up to this. Well, not even that, but like the turn to this complication where the Yucatan divorce was there's the second divorce is actually really satisfying because there's this moment you think it all works out except for Gladys, who has constantly been shit on the entire movie. Bless her heart. <laughs> and that's going to really suck. And then Gladys gets to tell off absolutely goddamn everyone in the movie for being a piece of shit. And you're like, wow, they are all pieces of shit. Gl- you go, Gladys. <laughs> this is great. But then the movie's like, oh, fuck, what do we do now? <laughs> Like, I mean, I guess they could have done some kind of coda where the dad walks in and is like, what is going on? And then we cut to like two weeks later when everything has been sorted out and they're all having dinner together and are happy or whatever. But like, and or like they're having a double wedding that no one ever has, but that you have in movies so that you can save five minutes in this. Yeah. yeah. Movies and Shakespeare. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just, I don't know. I was... I was just kind of letting this movie wash over me. Like, it's fine. It's a shittier. It happened one night. There's some sexism in here that I'm not really wild about. There's some racism in here I'm not really wild about. But, like, nothing that really made me go, like, oh, I have strong feelings about this one way or the other. And then the ending is just so friggin' wild. It just goes so thoroughly and suddenly off the rails. And the ending is wild in a way that it's unsatisfying in the sense that everything doesn't get perfectly wrapped up with a bow. And it ends in this, like, well, William Powell is still a bigamist and, like, that has to be worked out. And he's technically married to the woman he doesn't love and is not technically married or legally anyway to the one he does. And there's a there's a mess here that needs to get sorted out. And we're just going to leave it at that. But there is something that is kind of satisfying about the way that it subverts the romantic comedy, like everything ends and everything's happy. One of the, the major issues that I had with it, though, is that 
I think that the movie wants us to believe that Spencer Tracy and Gene Harlow's characters realizing that they love each other is the happy ending that King Wesley doesn't get in It Happened One Night. That, you know, oh, well, the two people who it would get sort of jilted in this case actually are together and they're happy. Except Spencer Tracy has no redeeming qualities in this movie. No. And I became extremely invested in the movie because I was waiting for the moment when it became clear that there was something about him that made Gladys love him in the first place. And there's nothing. No. There's nothing. And the movie wants you to think that Gladys is this like high maintenance, can never be made happy harpy. And Spencer Tracy is not that bad because like she is constantly nagging him or whatever. But all of his behavior justifies her frustration. And the fact that William Powell, by just extending the slightest courtesy toward her, manages to make her happy... It's clear that she's not incapable of being pleased. It's that this is a poor woman who has been absolutely neglected and frankly kind of abused by her fiance. Right. Two things I want to bring up. One is we're introduced to Spencer Tracy trying to skip out on his wedding for the third time. And in case that weren't enough, we have an Asian like manservant that's never seen or heard from again, just so Spencer Tracy can do a racist accent at him. And so that the Asian actor can also do a racist accent in the movie. Yeah. But two, the ending makes all of the stuff that I totally agree with you about about Spencer Tracy's character even more wild because it simultaneously really wants to judge Gladys for wanting to keep Bill for herself out of jealousy. But then the only thing we establish about Spencer Tracy's character that makes it seem like he cares about Gladys at all is that he's jealous Bill might have her. Yeah, yeah. And that's the only thing that seems to make him feel any affection toward her whatsoever. And so the idea that, like, a marriage can't be built on, like, jealousy and hate is like, well, it's going to, so those two shouldn't get fucking married. Like... (laughs) Right, exactly. You can't build a life on hate and you can't build a marriage on spite is great advice. And it's totally applicable to Gladys and Bill because Gladys would be building her life and her marriage on her hate and spite toward Warren. But her marriage to Warren would be built on the same foundation. (laughs) Because they don't stop hating and being spiteful toward one another just because they switch partners. Yeah, it's what I mean about, like, this movie knows that Gladys isn't getting a fair shake, but has no idea how to give her a fair shake. Right. And it's really satisfying to have the, like, third wheel of a love triangle just absolutely dress down everybody else in a romantic comedy, but, like... My dad talks all the time about in directing that there's sort of this realm of the possible that, you know, it might be really funny or really great for a character to do something, but it breaks the rest of the world. Yes. It breaks the world for Gladys to do this thing. It's really satisfying. I want to be in a movie where Gladys gets to do that and not this movie, but like it doesn't work. You literally can't end the movie after that. It just peters out into nothing. There is a way for the ending to be satisfying. And for me, that ending would be that Gladys realizes like, oh, I can't build a relationship with anyone while I feel this hatred and spite toward Warren. 
And then not getting together with Warren and being like, look, I'm going to find somebody else and you can stay married to your job. And it's interesting because I feel like when you're talking about like that Spencer Tracy reveals himself to be the dark heart of America, he's very much like Dodsworth in this movie, where we are supposed to think that a man who neglects the woman that he is supposed to love and completely takes her for granted is entitled to do that provided that the reason is because of work and in this it indicts him a little bit but it's also like we're supposed to think that Gladys is overreacting and is a bit out of control and she's often portrayed unsympathetically I'm sorry movie I totally sympathize with this poor woman (laughs) this is definitely the problem with act three is act one thing yes there is a moment where Like the third time William Powell talks Gladys into continuing with their sham marriage, despite some complication, where both she and Bill Chandler come into Spencer Tracy's office and just have this like swaggering confidence about them that made me think like, oh, thank God she's in on it now. Right. And like that would have been a fucking movie. Yeah. If the trick Bill Chandler pulls to have a happy ending is he actually brings Gladys in on the con against Warren. That would actually be perfect. We're going to screw Warren over together and you're going to be mine and Connie's friend. Yeah. Instead of competing for me with Connie. It would have been amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and I almost thought that was what they were doing, but no, instead it's another Gladys is easily conned into anything because she's kind of flighty and a nag. They should have given her a role similar to Una Merkel as Kitty in Broadway Melody, where like now she's in on it and she and Connie become friends. (laughs) That would have been great. Yeah. And there's something to me that is actually really frustrating about it in those like, the gender binary end of movie talk where like, oh, Gladys and Connie, who have literally met under terrible circumstances, that somehow Connie, because she is also a woman, I guess, or because she is Connie and and billionaire heiresses are people too, is able to be so wise and like talk her into it. She literally says women can't fool women about these things. And I'm like, Writer of that scene's never met a woman. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it makes sense that Warren and Bill can, like, fight and then talk about it because they are long-standing friends. They have known each other for years. But uh, I'm sorry, like, there's no fucking way that it would just be like, okay, well, we're both women, so now everything is fine because I told you this as a woman to a woman. Yeah, And so, like, I applaud the movie for giving Gladys some fundamental decency in the last act, but, like, you kind of gotta shit or get off the pot with that. She needs to have that fundamental decency through the whole film, or don't bother. Because then you just, like, wrecked the reality of the film for nothing, because she's still stuck with Spencer Tracy. Right, exactly. (laughs) Who is terrible, in case we haven't established that beyond all question. It does understand that the problem with the romantic comedy when there is something like this where one person leaves another person is that somebody doesn't get their happy ending, but it doesn't give the happy ending. It just gives like a a horrible consolation prize. Yeah, I could see it working if they were willing to really follow through and go like, oh God, everyone's miserable now. We just end with everyone being miserable. 
that like this was this house of cards thing where like everybody built all of their relationships on like lies right but like it's not gonna do that for god's sake (laughs) so why start head faking toward it if there aren't gonna be consequences for anybody then eh Whatever. I am spending too much time talking about this theoretical other movie and not enough time talking about the actual film we watched. But it was just so frustrating and strange. And like, honestly, the strange frustratingness of it was the most interesting thing about the movie, because otherwise it's just kind of a bog standard, not as good it happened one night. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the ways in which it tries to be quirky and different, other than the ending, are... William Powell, I love you, but you have no gift for physical comedy. No, he's terrible! That fucking him falling, <laughs> flailing around in the river for like five <laughs> minutes is just such a waste of everyone's time, including William Powell's. Also, he has to do it away from Connie so that the deception isn't revealed. So it's just utterly pointless. It's just this weird capsule of a scene where he keeps falling over into the water and it's nothing. He's so bad at physical comedy that they had to invoke the rule of threes. Like he had to fall over into the river three times for it to finally be funny. Yeah. The falls are so like, okay, okay, I'm going to fall now. I'm going to fall now. Okay, I'm going to fall now. All right, I fell. What makes a physical comedy fall funny is that there is actually that risk of danger. It is again about the like reality of this universe where he's doing these big exaggerated Laurel and Hardy type falls in what was supposed to be kind of a, of a universe with some physical reality to it. We have seen no earlier indication that like this is a slapstick universe where he could fall down the stairs and just hop back up and be fine. But he's still doing the like, oh, whoa, 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 arm thing. Right, right. It just doesn't fit. It also doesn't fit with his character or with William Powell's demeanor in general, because he is so whip smart and so smooth and so good at recovering from anything that is thrown his way. That is just not in line with that character. And one example of this, which I think was actually like one of the moments in the movie that was very good writing. And there were they were few and far between. I mean, the dialogue is funny and snappy and there's some good exchanges and there's some really clever things that happen. But as far as like plotting is concerned. Oh, yeah. No, this is structurally a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, But when he's at dinner at Connie and her dad's house and Spencer Tracy has just left. They're having the soup course, which I assume is very early in the meal, if not the first one. And he says something like, oh, you know, tomorrow I've got to meet with my publisher because he is sailing for England, you know, tomorrow, Friday the 8th. And they're like, no, today's Friday the 8th. And he says, no, 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 it's tomorrow. Tomorrow's Friday the 8th. And has them talk him into the fact that it is the day that it actually is. So that he has an excuse to be super apologetic, but dash out so he's not caught at dinner with Connie and her dad if and when Gladys and Warren show up with photographers to be like, oh, look, she really is stealing a married woman's husband. Which was good, because I was like, wait, what? What has happened? Oh, he totally knows exactly what day it is and is just trying to have an excuse to leave the dinner without being rude or suspicious 
And like, that is the character that we have set up throughout the entire movie, except for this moment where he falls down a whole bunch and then trying to recover from falling into the creek, the fish bites his line and he gets super lucky that he somehow caught the fish that Connie's dad has been trying to catch for two years. Which they make a big deal out of, and, like, that fish is, what, like, a pound? The prop department did not find the (laughs) biggest trout they could in, like, the L.A. area. I think it's another illustration of that same thing we're talking about with Gladys, where, like, the movie knows that William Powell's character's archetype of the guy that always has a plan, the guy that's always one step ahead, the guy that always, always knows what he's doing is fucking insufferable. Right. And tries to undercut that, but it doesn't understand how to undercut that. It doesn't know what to put in its place. So instead, that just inexplicably fails for him about a third of the time on with no underlying basis. Just like, nah, it just sucks sometimes. <laughs> right. This is just a movie that never came together. It's got a lot of fine actors in it. It's got a lot of fine scenes. The backbone of the thing is it happened one night, which is very strong. But just every time it tries for something new, that kind of falls apart on it. It is totally built on that foundation, but the house that they built on the foundation is not structurally sound. I will say it absolutely moves at a clip to the point where at one point during the movie, I got a text message and was responding to it and looked up and was like, oh, we're in a different scene and rewound the movie. And it was like, oh, no, we're two scenes past me answering a text message briefly. And it really does move very, very fast. William Powell and Myrna Loy, their chemistry is so delightful that you're right. If they would just put them in a room I would watch that movie no matter how long it was. You know, their chemistry in The Great Ziegfeld was very stilted because she was having to play this character based on a real person who was still alive and who was consulting on the movie and wasn't thrilled about her playing it in the first place. So it was so wooden. So as not to be offensive. And it's also what a waste of Myrna Loy to be a constantly supportive saintly wife. The thing that's fun about Myrna Loy is she gives him shit. She kind of needles him. And it's what's so great about their relationship in this and in The Thin Man, even though, like, we've talked at length about the little issue with The Thin Man that makes that feel weird. But he doesn't punch her in this, so, like, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. She definitely has the upper hand in that relationship basically the entire time. There's one scene where she makes herself vulnerable and he is immediately like, God, I'm a real piece of shit. I need to do something. And otherwise, she has the upper hand in the relationship really into the last scene. That dynamic, I think, works extremely well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But it's so little of the movie. So much of the movie is dedicated to humiliating Gladys or giving Spencer Tracy fucking something to do. Which is mostly just yell at everyone about how the plan isn't working fast enough and then come up with a stupider plan. And treating Gladys like shit. Yeah. You know, there's always some new complication to keep the two of them apart. And it's a real bummer because the two of them together is like the spark of this movie. Uh, And I I get it. You have to kind of keep them apart in order for there to be a conflict because that is the major, you know point of a narrative is overcoming the conflict but the conflict is so extravagant and contrived 
that I mean, well, that's that's why you get the ending is it's like, well, we kind of wrote ourselves into a corner by having this be the plan in the first place. I mean, to its credit, it doesn't make Gladys out to be so ignorant about her own existence that she wasn't aware that her first divorce was not final. Yeah. I don't know what this movie thinks of Gladys. Yes, exactly. It is such a strange choice to have her suddenly stand up for herself. I think it's the right choice in terms of, like, morally, but it's so out of step with how it has acted about her for the rest of the movie. I don't know whether they decided to do that because they decided it was unsatisfying for Gladys, or whether they were like, this is too easy, it's wrapped up in too simple of a bow, and then just got into one of those things where it's like, oh shit, I just like, I... Like, uh, everything's spilling out of the bag. Like, this was a terrible plan. I shouldn't have touched this at all. (laughs) But it doesn't, you're right, clarify at all what the moral position about Gladys of this movie is to have her stand up for herself. Instead, it just reads as this weird, like, wait, we're doing what now? Because there's no follow through. Yeah. So it's just this one weird isolated moment of... Hey, all of you treat me like shit, and you're all really shitty, and you all suck, and I hope you all die unhappy. And you're like, whoa, whoa, where was this movie? In that moment, are we supposed to see that all of these times where Gladys has been a nag or Gladys has wanted something for herself that the movie doesn't want her to have, like Bill, were those things justified because they do all treat her like crap? And if so, then why are we supposed to be okay with Spencer Tracy, I guess, coming to the realization that he actually loves her and her coming to the realization that she actually loves him? Maybe it's less that the movie doesn't know how it feels about Gladys as it doesn't know that Spencer Tracy is a piece of garbage and that this is not giving her what she deserves. This is punishment i think even more than that it like can't figure out how to give gladys something fair without making bill and connie unhappy and also to be clear they're not fucking spencer tracy level awful but both bill and connie are kind of awful too Uh, my easiest fix for this movie would be to just literally end with gladys walking out and all three of them going like i don't what do we what do we do (laughs) yeah because that's effectively how the movie ends anyway (laughs) They just try and walk it back. And it's like, don't walk it back. <laughs> That's such a weird anticlimax of an ending. I I get why they didn't go with it. But like, they still have a weird anticlimax of an ending. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know that it. Well, I guess Connie is kind of a piece of shit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not like that. She's much more charming. And she definitely has a nuance that Spencer Tracy's character doesn't have. But for instance, her reaction to Spencer Tracy coming in and being like, hey, if you do this, if you go through with this lawsuit, then 500 people will lose their jobs, which also like 500 people work in a newspaper. The 30s. It's like, yeah, wow. Remember when newspapers and her response is like, oh, you're right. I definitely don't want all those people to go hungry and not have a job because of what you did. So... I'm now more determined to win this case so that I can use the five million as a trust fund for all the people who lose their jobs. You know that doesn't work. 
you know that that doesn't work. The paper probably doesn't have $5 million, so all you're going to do is fold the paper and not have the money to do anything with it. And given the way that she discusses that and the way that she talks about money, you know she's not going to just take $5 million of her own money and do it. You also know that that's bullshit, because in the last scene, she just drops the lawsuit and is like, yeah, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm married. <laughs> like, I don't, but whatever. Which, like, really, to me, was the absolute, like, moment where I was just like, you know what, fuck Connie a little bit. She's kind of... <laughs> if this wasn't actually a strong moral stand and you were just bored and hate this newspaper... Yeah, or like, oh, if they print this, then it makes it difficult for me to get married, yet also I'm constantly worried about gold diggers. Like, what damage did it ever do to her? None. You know, I really don't want to go like, these characters don't deserve happiness, they're really just run-of-the-mill romantic comedy awful. Uh, but if the movie wanted to make a stand of like, hey, all these people you've been watching delightfully lie and steal from each other and just be really rude to each other constantly, all kind of suck, bye. I would have at least been like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Instead of what just happened, which was my actual reaction to the ending of this film. I think it was also everyone's actual reaction to the ending of this film. Connie's dad comes in and says, like, what is happening? And I think he speaks for all of us. <laughs> right. In universe, out of universe. <laughs> so the fishing thing is such a weird thing to latch on to, I thought. And maybe this is a, you know, looking at it from 2019 as opposed to the 30s, but like it almost frames fishing as like a sport in a very weird way. And it spends so much time talking about fishing and they have like a fancy fishing instructor. <laughs> I, like, were people just really into fishing and they felt like this was a great way to, like, no pun intended, hook people in? I think it is as simple as they needed a reason for Connie and Bill to be in a scene together again after the boat. Because mm. it definitely feels like the kind of thing where, like, in the first draft, he tries the fishing thing and it falls flat. Because it does initially fall flat. Right. And then they were like... With her, anyway. Well, with even with the dad. The dad's like, I hubbed up bub. I have to read about stocks. Good day and like doesn't actually give a shit until like the third scene with bill or until he like rescues them a second time from the burns norvels it feels like a thing where they figured out that narratively something has to work or you don't have a movie and they're like well the only thing we've established is this fishing thing so now we have to do more shit with this fishing thing and it just balloons up to be like 20 minutes of the movie now they really did just Go all in on the fishing. Oh, yeah. There's the initial scene where he comes up with the idea. Then there's the scene where he has the porter get all the fishing books from the shipboard library on the cruise. Which is apparently enough to make him an expert on angler fishing. Like an absolute right. expert. Because then there's the third scene where he memorizes all the angling books while he shaves. Then there's two separate scenes during the dinner party section that are dedicated to him trying to talk about fishing. Then there's the scene where he tries to get away from the dad because the dad is so into talking about fishing with him. 
Then there's the scene where he trains at fly fishing and figures out he has an underhand cast. Then there's them actually going to fish. Then finally Connie's in love with him and we can stop talking about fish entirely for the rest of the fucking film. Right. Just immediately. No one cares about fish anymore for a single second. (laughs) It's really weird. The costumes in this movie are fabulous, but... They raise a question for me, which is, where does Gladys have the money for all of the furs? What does she do? Is she also a millionaire heiress? Because in every scene, almost, she is wearing a tremendous amount of fur. Isn't it implied at some point that she has money from her first marriage? I mean, I I guess maybe that was what it is and I just missed that. But like, my God. I mean, honestly, I only picked up on that because it was another thing that made Spencer Tracy seem awful. I was like, oh, of course he's marrying her for her money. Piece of shit. Otherwise, I didn't really care, but it just was another detail of how terrible they were for each other. So also, maybe I'm just making that up. But I feel like she says at some point when she's setting up her first marriage that, like, he had money and now I have money or something. But yes, she is so immaculately dressed at all times. Also, interesting little side note about the behind the scenes stuff. Apparently, William Powell and Jean Harlow were a couple during this movie and she wanted to play Connie and had already signed on for the movie but MGM was like no we want Myrna Loy and William Powell to be the couple again because they have great chemistry and she was like well shit I guess I am gonna just play the Baxter chick but apparently Myrna Loy and Spencer Tracy had an affair during the making of this movie, which I cannot imagine. I can't imagine. That's gotta be one of those rumors they started for publicity. Like, I cannot imagine. Just what's the moment where you look over at Spencer Tracy during filming of this? I guess if it's... How long was the shoot? July? No, not even that long. It's like a month and a half shoot. So there's not even time to be like, eh, I gotta fuck somebody. Like, like... <laughs> I mean, I guess if I'm like, have all these like, incredibly cute flirtatious scenes with somebody who is literally dating my co-star, I'm like, well, I gotta put this somewhere. Yeah, I guess like spent, but like, again, at a month and a half, I'm like, that does not seem like enough time for, I mean, Spencer Tracy's here. (laughs) I mean, like, I guess he's famous and famously attractive in the 30s, but like, God, every single time you film a scene, it's like, I don't know. It's like, who falls in love with just such a... I know, like, Spencer Tracy is not literally his character, but, like, it. there's that bleed over always in an acting performance where, like, who they're playing kind of colors them as a person for you a little bit. And it just feels like, what was the day of shooting where he was even inoffensive to you? Yeah, right? Like, I... I... I don't find him attractive at all, and I get that he was, apparently, but I I have never seen him so far in anything where he's not just a total shit. Yeah. So, I don't, I don't get it. Also, this is something I've been looking at on the Wikipedia page for a while, which is, I want to suggest a new sort of, like, warm-up exercise for actors to, like, get all the vowel sounds for you, uh, which is... Bunny Beatty as Babs Burns Norville, Mrs. Burns Norville's daughter. That's really good, yeah. Like Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
we didn't even talk about those characters again because they're so throwaway they tried to force in the like stuffy ants or like the weird sisters from mr deeds goes to town yeah and they were so offhanded and they had like a moment of plot at all where they reveal that in fact William Powell's character is married through like the most contrived route. So much of this movie feels kind of sloppy in that way where they're like somebody's got to tell Connie about Gladys. Oh we have these two other characters that we put in earlier just so that there would be annoying people that Bill was less annoying then so that Connie would hang out with them. Why don't we bring those two extraneous characters back, have them completely coincidentally see Bill with Gladys and talk about it? You can just sort of see the like, well, we've got to do this to get to this scenes in this movie so clearly. It's it's a lot of like throwing stuff at the wall and very little of it actually sticking. So to rate this movie... Um, you know, I keep, I, I have these two battling things, which are like, it was fine. Like, we're really not, we're really not going into sort of little moments of dialogue that work, just the, like where character relationships work, where the movie is effective, but we're also not really going into all of the scenes where shitty racist and sexist stuff happens. And I kind of want to say that all cancels out and we get to a five. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I, I, my inclination is to go for a five, and then I remember the, like, horrible Chinese stereotype. Yeah. And the, let's throw Hattie McDaniel in for two seconds to play a maid, because, of course, and I'm gonna bring it down to a four. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm gonna agree on the four. I know we don't have to agree and come up with the same score, but I was kind of having the same internal debate of, like, do I want to say this movie's less than par? And I didn't want to, but I should. It's a bit of a mess of a movie. It's got its good points, which are just Myrna Loy and William Powell flirting with each other and the costumes. It's got its bad points, which are the plot is ridiculous and the ending is confusing and unsatisfying in a way that I don't think was as intentional as, you know, a, a postmodern reflection on romantic comedies. But then you throw in the totally unnecessary, just like, let's have a funny racist gag bits, and you, you gotta bring it down from the five. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Should you watch this movie? <laughs> yeah, no. I'd watch The Thin Man. If, you're, if you really want to see Myrna Loy and William Powell, it has its problems too, as we discussed at length, but like... Yeah. There's a movie around the problems, and here there's just like... Whoops, what's happening? Oh, God. There's some scenes of, like, witty dialogue, but they're not worth it. Yeah, I would say just give yourself an It Happened One Night, The Thin Man double feature. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll get both of the good things about those movies, which uh, they tried to do in this, and, and uh, it was a swing and a miss. So next week. Next week, we have our final film of 1936 with three smart girls. It's a musical comedy. There's absolutely no discussion of the plot on the Wikipedia page. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I know how I feel about it, which is nervous. Right. This is the shortest summary of a film since In Old Arizona. It's about three sisters who travel to New York City to prevent their father from remarrying. 
the three plot to bring their divorced parents back together again. Okay, so it's like the parent trap, but with three daughters and a musical. With triplets instead of twins. Yeah, all right. I literally don't recognize a single actor or director listed, so, you know, there's that. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's it's gonna be something. I don't know what it's gonna be, but it's gonna be something. It's gonna be the last movie of 1936. Yep, and then we're gonna discuss this gar- garbage, garbage year? Mostly garbage year. Not entirely- I'm gonna say uneven year. That's fair. I'd forgotten about Mr. Deeds. Uneven- is much fairer. Yeah. Eh. We'll get into it next week. I'll say mediocre, not even uneven. Like, it was evenly mediocre with the exception of Mr. D. <laughs> yeah, a, a Tale of Two Cities started off- And up, A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. Again, we'll get into it next week, where maybe Three Smart Girls will be the third very good film of 1936. Uh, until then- This was a movie, it was not sure which movie to be- and just the the waveform did not collapse correctly. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Is, is that the question? Yes. Will you marry me? Well, well Connie. Will you? Well, what do you think? When? When? Now? You mean soon? I mean now, tonight. Tonight? Will you, Bill? Will I? Is there a preacher in the house? Oh, not here. We'll take the car. We'll drive. To the moon. <laughs>